Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Welcome to the Girl CEO Podcast, the playground for female entrepreneurs. My name is Ronnie Brown, and I'm the author of Amazon's best-selling book, From Mopping Floors to Making Millions, and was once a teen mom to a millionaire business mentor. I created my Girl CEO community for women like you. Girl CEO, you are a trailblazer, a creative, an innovator, a boss, and a woman who knows that she deserves more. Join me each week while we uncover what it truly takes to be your own boss and become a successful girl CEO. And don't worry, sis, I got you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Girl CEO podcast, the playground for female entrepreneurs. And I am so freaking excited because I have a super badass here with me today. And, you know, we are in the middle of International Women's Month. And I am just like pumped because women are changing the game right now. And I have a woman here with us today who is not only just building a legacy, but just really setting the bar in an industry and shattering ceilings, um, one business at a time. Not only do you own one company, but you own two. Many people probably don't know that. Um, Morgan Devon, can you go ahead and just say hello to everyone? And let's start, let's let's just chat. Go ahead and introduce yourself. I'm, I got to turn it over to you real quick. Yeah. Well, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, a little bit about me. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, so Midwest through and through. Um, I started my career in tech working in Silicon Valley straight after college, and I did that for a couple of years before starting my company, Blavity Inc. And Blavity um, is a media company. We focus on the Black millennial experience, both online and offline. And as a part of Blavity, we have acquired different companies and brands like Travel Noir and Shadow and Act. Wow. And we also run and operate our own brands, Blavity News, um, 2190, which has Summit 21. And of course, Afrotech, which is an incredibly huge conference for entrepreneurs, techies, innovators. Um, and I'm so excited finally for us to be back in person because I've missed everybody. Yes. Well, you know. Let me just say this, Morgan, I am so impressed by your story. You know, seeing a Black woman who is just out here killing it the way you're killing it and just keeping it all together. I am just amazed at watching you be able to juggle it all and then to keep it together and, and, and have all these employees and have these companies that understand business the way you do, you know, one of the things that I'm just really wild about is the level of intelligence you have when it comes to not just building a brand, but scaling a brand. So I want to get up into that a little bit today. Let me start off with saying um, a lot of the wisdom that you have. I heard you speak one time. I think we were on like a clubhouse together and mm -hmm. I was so blown away just hearing your story and just hearing about your dad. Can we kind of talk about, you know, where Morgan started and and your upbringing, because it's so important for people to understand the power of not only uh, the, the mentorship and parenthood, but the impact that it actually has on your future. Yeah, my parents um, have been together for a very long time. They met in high school and uh, my dad went to Howard, my mom went to Howard and um, she eventually graduated from Iowa State. But yeah, I came from a very close knit family um, where everything was black. Like, I don't think I saw like a black, a white Santa 
or a white Cinderella or like anything white until I was in kindergarten. <laughs> so my parents were very intentional about just surrounding me with black intelligence and love and uh, excellence. And at a young age, probably around 13, 12, 13, 14, um, my parents started talking about uh, the stock market. And my grandma had stocks and my dad had stocks and it was just a part of the conversation all the time. And so my dad was really intentional about um, enabling me to get into the stock market. So I started off as a retail investor, uh, which is you know what, what we call kind of people who, who trade the stock market every day, not, not Wall Street people, but just regular people like me and you at the age of 13. So I opened up a Schwab account, a joint Schwab account, um, and I started buying stocks. And my dad would play this game with me where if I invested my money, he would match it. So, you know, when like your parents or your grandparents give you $50 or $25 or whatever. And he was like, if you put in half into the bank account, I'll match it. So I was quick math. I've always been a hustler. So I was like, boom, 100% return. I'm in. <laughs> Now I can invest in really risky stuff like Netflix, which at the time was like super risky because they were still mailing stuff in and um, Tesla and Apple and all of these things that now are incredibly huge companies. And um, I really, it's so exciting to me to see everybody now be in the real not now be in the uh, stock market because I, I always felt like a weird girl who knew all the stock tickers and like totally nerded out on checking everything every day. And, and let me just say this, I think that people really overlook how young you can actually start your kids off with financial literacy, because that's a big thing that just stood out to that conversation at 13 years old. You know, right now, most people are just like, hey, maybe they're not ready. Maybe they're not mature enough. They're playing video games. Um, how do you feel like your dad kind of bought you in and kept it interesting and fun to you? He made it a game. I mean, it was a point of conversation at the dinner table and it was a competition. It was who had the best returns. Mm. Right? And I'm competitive. <laughs> so it was a constant, it was a constant conversation. I mean, even to this day, this morning, I'm at my parents' house right now. And uh, he, he was asking Alexa what the price of the NVIDIA stock was this morning. So it's just part of our day-to-day -day flow in our household is um, money, stocks, CNBC. We watch Kramer. I used to watch Kramer after school every day on CNBC. Um, I've invested now in a, I'm an angel investor in a company called Public, where it's an app to encourage more people to invest and mm -hmm. democratize investing. Um, so yeah, it's just a part of my life and it, and it has been for quite some time. Wow. Like that is so powerful to everyone that's listening. I just want you guys to really hear this. Like this is all about creating the environment that you want for your children. A lot of you all who listen to the Girl CEO podcast, your mothers, your professionals, and even if you, you're not a parent, there's an opportunity for you to create that environment for your family, your cousins, your sisters, or your brothers, and it can literally change the trajectory of your lives. Yes. And what I'm really hearing is that, how old were you when you were buying the Amazon stock 13? Did you buy Amazon stock at 13? I didn't buy Amazon, but I did buy Facebook. I think Facebook was at $17 when I bought it. 17 oh my gosh. Oh, can we do the math? Like, I okay, hope then. The math. <laughs> I will say I was not rich. So, <laughs> you know, a couple shares, not a couple shares. I think I maybe had like 25 or 30, 40, but I actually started to get a job when I was in high school. I think the legal age was like 15 or 16 in, in Missouri at the time. And I would put most of my money, it was gas, you know, McDonald's money, literally, <laughs> and stocks. And I would put a portion of my paycheck uh, as much as I could into the stock market. But, you know, I had bills, cell phone bills and, and everything else growing up. Yeah. Well, how do you, how did you create that level of discipline as well? Let's just kind of talk about that because we are in a space where everyone wants the ROI immediately. Yeah. And when you're getting paid from working at McDonald's, the first thing that you're going to think is, you know, this is a $300 check. You know, this is, this is it. How can I just dump all of this into the stock market and stay, you know, above water? Like, what does that look like for the average person? And we're going to, be honest. Let's talk about that. Yeah, we should be honest about it. Um, to me, it's about understanding the game, like the beauty of compound interest, which is, you know, you put in a hundred dollars into a stock and that stock pays 
dividends and you get a return every year. The average stock market return, uh, like the NASDAQ, I think is between six and 12%, depending on the time frame that you look at, let's call it 7% for the sake of argument. Well, every year you're making 7%. And then, you know, all of a sudden your hundred dollars is, or your thousand dollars or your hundred dollars is $107, but now you're making 7% off 107. So now you're making boom, boom. And every year it's compounding, it's compounding. And if that stock pays dividends, that which means they share their profits with their investors every quarter or every year, then your $107 all of a sudden bumped up to 110 because they gave you a, a $3 dividend, 3%, and then boom, you're compounding interest again. Now you have 7% on $110 plus dividend. And all of a sudden, you got a lot of money. When you're 40 years old or 35 years yeah. old, you start at 13. It's about the time. So a lot of people are playing this game and they're selling their stock and they're like, oh my God, this is not working. It's going out. They're selling it. No, you got to hold for mm. five, seven, 10 years. You can play the day-to-day game, but that's 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 really for the robots and for the for Wall Street. For the regular retail investor, it's buy and hold. Buying companies that are going to be here in 10 years. Is Apple going anywhere? No, they have more cash than the federal government. Apple has more cash than the federal government. They're not going anywhere. Not at all. <laughs> it's a way of life now. Like, you can't operate in the States. Like, like when you look at the financials of these companies, and this is also why I think I've had the audacity to do what I've done as an entrepreneur, is because I'm not comping myself to the people that I was seeing around me in St. Louis or the people that I was seeing around me you know, in college, I was exposed at a very young age to the idea that a company, a corporation could have more cash mm. or GDP equivalent than an entire continent. Mm. It's nuts. And, and I don't think that we talk enough about that because if we did, I believe that more people would be running to ownership. Yes. And yeah, ownership will be, yeah, more conversation around ownership, you know? So you own Blavity? Yes, Blavity Inc. Incorporated. And let's talk about your, the second company that many people probably don't know that you own. And Afrotech, which is and a part of <laughs> So let's talk about how you got started with building these companies. I want to start with um, just letting the people know exactly what Blavity is and exactly yeah. what Afrotech is. So just to clarify, Blavity Inc. is a, uh, we have a portfolio of brands. And so we own Blavity.com, which is a news site. Uh, you go Blavity.com, you're going to get your news, you're going to get your newsletter, it's politics, it's thoughts, it's op-eds. We also own Afrotech, which is a huge conference. You go to Afrotech.com, you're going to see, it's kind of like the CNBC for Black folks. You're going to see who raised money, what's the new valuations, what stocks are trading. You're going to see all that good stuff. Um, We also acquired Travel Noir, Mm. which is an incredible Instagram account founded by Zim um, and a brand. And we added the media side of it. So the website, the content, the editorial, we acquired Shadow and Act. And we also built 2190, which has a, a women's conference called Summit 21, which is usually in Atlanta. So Blavity Inc. Incorporated uh, is a house of brands and owns and operates all five of those. And we also have an ad network where we partner with other Black publishers and multicultural publishers and partners to help them monetize their brands. Wow. So what does starting Blavity look like? The, the, the very beginning, what did that look like? Morgan. <laughs> well, you know, I was definitely uh, working. I was in, I was working at a big tech company as a product manager. I loved my job. Like I loved creating um, products for people at scale and the methodology and the, the, the energy of Silicon Valley, which is very unapologetic about thinking big and building products for millions and billions of people. You know, you walk down the street in San Francisco and you see the Salesforce headquarters, you see the Facebook SF office, you see the Google Facebook, Google office, you see all of these places that are creating the products that we use on a day to day. And what I realized was, these people don't look like me and they're not creating products for my people. There's a huge audience that is missing in terms of 
uh, building products and experiences for us. And legacy brands like BET or Essence and others are incredible. However, they hadn't really pivoted to digital. They were very focused on TV or they were focused on magazines. And so there was this opportunity for me and my co-founders, Jeff and Aaron and Jonathan, to create a business and a brand and a platform for Black millennials and to super serve them. So we are we are aggressive about, we want to take over your whole screen. And now I want to take over your ears through podcasting. And maybe we're going to take over your TVs through streaming. And also millennials are going to be the older demographic soon enough, right? So now we need to work on Gen Z and being a media brand and media company uh, that is the clearinghouse of information and moving the culture forward. And when you were working at, you know, this tech company, how did you make that transition? Because, you know, a lot of people struggle with balancing, you know, working in corporate America and then going out here and going hard for your dream. Um, what are just some of the some of the pushback and some of the obstacles that you dealt with throughout that process? Yeah, so I was 24 when I quit my job and start, and worked full time on Blavity. So I was in the workforce for about two and a half, three years. Wow. Um, and I quit early. Like, 24, 24. Yeah, I was 24. I was a young CEO. Oh my God, that's crazy. <laughs> it was a lot. It was a lot. It's been a lot. It's been a lot. Um, but I learned a lot. You know, have, being so young, I didn't have a lot of the risk situations that others that I would have now in my 30s, or, you know, I don't have a family. And so I didn't have anyone to take care of but myself. And so I had the privilege of being able to live like I was still in college. So instead of popping bottles on the weekend and my Louis Vuitton and Gucci and all this stuff, I was like, I'm going to continue to eat boiled eggs and oatmeal. I am going to come to the office with my Tupperware and all this free food y'all want to buy. I'm here for it. Tupperware. I was saving as much money as possible so that I could invest in the business while I still had my day job and then save enough money so that I could still live in San Francisco, which was, you know, so expensive um, while, when I eventually quit my job. Wow. And, and when did Blavity start making money? Like when you said like, okay, we're making money now, you know, how long did that really take? And, and what, what did that look like? So the first year I wanted to really focus on building something that mattered and building, being of service and having value in the brand and defining what the brand and our voice was. And so I didn't want to worry about money and um, trying to make money because once you start to make money, then you start to cater to it and it can be intoxicating. So the first year I bootstrapped, I did not raise money. We did not try to make any money. We just grew the brand. And for those who don't know what bootstrapping is, because some people don't know, can we kind of just tell them what bootstrapping yeah. is? So bootstrapping is when you use your own personal funds to finance the startup of your business. Most people, 99% of people bootstrap, right? Okay. I know the news makes it look like everybody's out here raising money, but most people are not raising money for their small business or their startup. They're starting off with their own money. Got it. So the first year you bootstrap and then what happened? And then I went out and raised money. So I raised, I believe, five or $600,000, that first round of funding. Um, and I used that money to hire um, employees who were already working with us, but didn't have a full-time salary. So I used it to bring them on board full-time. Uh, we moved to LA, got our first office, and then I hired a sales team. And that's when we started to, to ramp up and make money. So the first year in business, I believe we made around a million dollars in revenue. Um, and we made money through a few things. We sold conference sponsorships for a conference called Empower Her, which was the predecessor to Summit 21. Um, okay. And we sold like a video campaign and um, Instagram ads. Got it. Got it. So you guys 
let's let's kind of dig deep into that because some people want to know like how does blavity make money so the first thing that you all were doing was you were selling sponsorships you were selling visibility stating that you know if you sponsor this conference or this event or what we have going on here in return you will get your brand in front of x amount of people um x amount of views uh let's talk a little bit about that you know how did you fine, were, were you creating these proposals? Were you sending out these sponsor decks? What did that look like? Yeah, we were uh, maybe six or seven employees at the time. So it was all hands on deck. I mean, there was nothing. I was the queen rainmaker uh, for many years. And um, we made a deck for, a deck is a PowerPoint presentation um, for Empower Her. And we said, these are the speakers, this is the uh, venue, this is the opportunity, this is the pricing. The pricing was very reasonable. It was $5,000, $10,000, $15,000 max, I think. Um, Our first sponsors were Southwest Airlines, the Knight Foundation, Cover FX, um, some like small retail companies, apparel companies, and I can't really tell you why they decided to spend this money on us. I mean, I I look back now and I'm like, oh, wow. You know, we were very good at selling yeah. because it was about four or 500 women. The whip, the quality of the women, though, the type of woman was very influencer based. And again, this was five, six years ago. So at the time, people weren't doing influencer, you know, like black women influencer conferences. There was blog her. The Create Cultivate had just started. Um, there was maybe, the, uh, the, there was just very few. Our uh, 29 rooms hadn't started. I mean, this was a while ago. So uh, I think we just had something that people wanted and that it was the right time and right moment. I would never advise that someone try to do this now because you're going to be competing with big, big, the big boys. And that's tough. So, so what do you suggest people who are trying to get that sponsorship money? What do you suggest that they do right now? I get this question all the time. Um, It has to be a niche that is really actually niche. So I was just on the phone earlier today with the founder of BlurredCon. It's in uh, in Virginia. It's about five to 15,000 people, all blurred, black black people doing cosplay. And I'm like, boom, that is sponsorable because there's nowhere else you're going to find that, you know? And it's going to be very hard to convince people you can't duplicate it easily. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of times I see conferences where people are like, it's for female entrepreneurs. And I'm like, okay, join the club. That's not differentiated enough. Um, so I really recommend that people find niches or sub communities um, and be specific. And, and then also from a sponsorship point of view, aim for regional sponsors Everybody wants to go get a McDonald's or a, a car company or whomever. And those are really tough to get because you're competing with companies like mine or Essence Best, right? So go after smaller companies that are relevant in that market because they're going to understand the transaction. Um, and the, the key point is they want to know if I sponsor this, how much money do I make, yeah. right? How much more money new customers and so you have to understand their economics as well, not just what you want to make, but how you're going to help make them money. And that's where the debt comes in and then selling yourself. And at this time, when you were setting out this debt, how old were you, Morgan? Oh, 25. Okay. So let me ask you a question. Where do you find, you know, where does a person go? We have thousands and thousands of girl CEOs that are listening to this podcast, you know, where do you go to put together your first deck when you don't have resources, when you don't have income and when you don't have, you know, 75 employees or, you know, thousands of people working for you, where do you go and what does that look like? Well, nowadays it's much easier. I feel like an old lady of nowadays. Um, (laughs) Today is I would go to creativemarket.com and I would go to canva.com and I would use one of their templates. Mm-hmm. And I would not try to make a deck from scratch. Don't do that because your margins are going to be off. Your fonts are going to be off. You need to be professional. And I would say less is more. Four wow. or five pages, not 10, not 20, 
four or five pages, but make sure your the front door to your business looks very professional. So you got to punch up, up, above your weight class. The good thing about digital is nobody knows what's happening behind the scenes, right? So if you had asked somebody when when we were two, three years old, what how many people we had or how much money we were making, you know, we looked really big. Yeah. Um, and that's because we were very sensitive about our Instagram, our website, making sure we had professional email addresses, everything from outside looking in uh, was much, looked much bigger than we actually were in terms of operations. And that bought us in the fight that bit me in the butt a couple of years later. But um, those are first world problems. You want to make it to a couple of years later. For sure. And did you think like, was this always your vision that you know, Blavity would be a media company and that you would be selling ad space and that you would be, you know, getting sponsorships from companies. Like, was that what you said to yourself when you initially launched this idea? Because so often we we launch businesses and I think we don't always know when we're creating them what they will evolve, you know, how they will evolve and what they will become. Like, you don't really know that, but did you know that at that time? I was not married to the solution. I was married to the customer. I was committed to the Black millennial audience and growing with us, myself, my peers, uh, through our lifetime and through our generation. That was the commitment. And I still, to this day, am very flexible about how we solve and, and the problems and the challenges or provide new opportunities or product experiences for our demographic. So that's what I'm married to. And I think that's really critical for entrepreneurs. To your point, a lot of people say, oh, I want to be an entrepreneur. And I'm like, okay, cool. But like, what problem are you solving or who are you passionate about serving? Because entrepreneurship as a career title is not glamorous. Like it is an incredibly difficult journey. So you have to be motivated by more things than just money. It has to bring you joy. The work that you do every day has to make you happy because that's what's guaranteed is that you're going to be working every day. And, and let's talk a little, let's just kind of touch on that. I want to go back to the ways that you've scaled uh, Blavity, but, you know, let's talk about the moments. Were there ever moments in your building phase where you were like, I don't know if this is it anymore. You know, I don't know. If this, I don't know if I can do this. You know, what did those days, what did they look like? Oh, there's a lot of days where I said, why did I do this? Why did I sign up for this? Um, and I hear that girl feels because some of you guys, you say that and you, you're, you really go forward with like quitting and just not doing it. Don't quit. <laughs> <laughs> just Don't so quit. You know, everyone goes through this phase. Okay. I want to just clear this up because I say this and I don't think they believe me, but everyone goes through that. So what did that look like for you, Maury? <laughs> yeah, when the momentum, when you start to be successful, the momentum starts to catch up with you. There are times when you're like, I would really like to just not today. Mm. And um, you can't not because you're the CEO and it's your job to actually show up, whether that's for your employees, whether that's for me, my investors, um, I, for the first couple of years of business, I could not take a vacation without my laptop, you yeah. know, without being online. And I mean, I used to be bad. I used to sleep with my laptop in bed because I was going to sleep working and I was waking up opening that thing. So I was very uh, committed and I worked a lot of hours. I worked very hard on on Blavity to be what it is today so that I can have the freedom that I have now and the lifestyle that I have now. But it it wasn't, I didn't start the business with this lifestyle, with yeah. this freedom, you know? And I think that's the key is that a lot of people look at us as entrepreneurs and they look at where we are today and they're like, oh, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to live that life. We weren't on the gram when we were just working. We're not, there's nothing to show you. Yeah. Behind the scenes. That, and, no. and that's going to start looking like, you know, look, it's going to start to look very redundant. You know, it's every day. It's the same it's every day, same thing. And for me, I, I feel grateful that I had co-founders because they were really able to balance me out when those days or those weeks where I'm like, I'm just not feeling it. Like I'm going to do my job and I'm going to show up and do my work, but I need, I need to step back. And we've all been very honest with each other about when we've had those time periods, we've been doing this for six, almost seven years now. So it's inevitable that for two months, three months, you know, occasionally you're just not feeling it yeah. and then you just fall back. And let me ask you a question. Did sleeping with your laptop, you know, because we're, we're women here, you know, this is a girl CEO, <laughs> this is a girl CEO convo. 
how did that impact your relationships? You know, because a lot of people, you know, it used to be like guys were the workaholics and they were working hard and the women were at home like, you need to make time for me. You know, how does that work as a successful woman in business who still wants that love and, and still understands that life is happening outside of business? Did that impact your 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 relationships, even now to friendships in any shape or form? Um, well, in the early days of Blavity, I was in long distance relationships. And in hindsight, I think I was in long distance relationships because that was the only relationship I could have. Like, it was like, oh, this is great because when I'm, with you, I'm, yeah, like when I'm with you, I'm with you. And, you know, I'm a girl and feminine energy and like, I'm a goddess, take care of me. Let's go to dinner. Let's get dressed up, you know. And then when you're gone, <laughs> Take notes, ladies. <laughs> I'm back. But you know, uh, as I age, <laughs> you know, this is 25, 26 year old me. And I was popping, you know, we out. I was all star. We, I mean, we would go out because we're working. It's work, it's play, it's, it's everything. Um, as I got older, now I am like, oh no, like, I need a 100% man, not a like weekend man. So, <laughs> Um, so I have to make some adjustments to me. It's, it's, I'm a, I was attracting the man that also wanted a long distance relationship. And so those are different types of people, but now I have to make more space for me. And I'm grateful that my business affords me the freedom to be able to go offline by yeah. 730 and be able to take vacations or be able to manage my schedule a little bit easier um, or not have to travel as much. I was on the road. There was a time when I was on the road every week. So it takes time. And I think the challenge sometimes with as women, we want it all now, right? Yeah. It's like, I want the man, I want the house. I want the the freedom. I want to be the entrepreneur. I want to wear Gucci. I want my closet organized. I want everything now. And my point of view was always, you know what? My twenties are going to be dedicated to me and my business and my finances and my wealth and my skills and just figure out who I am. And then in my thirties, I'm going to take all of that gain, all of those assets, all of that wealth, and I'm going to pour it into the next version of myself as a potential wife, as a potential mom, as someone who is dedicated to family and the next generation. Yeah, I also think that as we get older and we're building the wealth, that we realize that it's really not as important as we initially thought it was. And it's like, I remember when I wanted to make my first million dollars, I was like, okay, I'm going to be a millionaire. And then it's like, okay, I became a millionaire. It's like, okay, you made a million dollars. Okay, great. Okay, now what? All I right. think that's key. To me, it's about the lifestyle. So when you don't have any money and you're eating oatmeal and boiled eggs and you're grinding, you think that, oh, well, when I make $2 million or $1 million, my life is going to change significantly. And then it does. But the difference between $5 million and $7 million is irrelevant to, in terms of your day-to-day -day lifestyle. You can have pretty much everything that you want and your life also gets less expensive the richer you get, which is so silly because yeah. people start giving you things. Exactly. People start, you know, flying you around the country. You go to trips. Your friends have money, so they pay them for dinner. Like, it's <laughs> talk about it, Morgan. Talk about it. You and know what I'm saying? You go to dinner and you're like ready. They're like, oh, I got it. I'm like, damn, well, y'all didn't have it when I was broke. Who's gonna pay this time? You're like, oh, okay, go ahead, girl. You got it. <laughs> Everybody Everyone just wants to make it clear that, you know, they're doing well, you know? <laughs> it's no competition. It's all love to me. We all on the yacht, you know? Exactly. All love. <laughs> exactly. And, and I think that also the quality of life, because for me, my quality of life, of life it became more important. Yes. So it's like, yeah, even for me, we got, I got to a place where I'm like, you know, this is ten or twenty thousand dollars on the line if I go to this event, and then I'm just like, oh, you know, I don't even think it's worth it because I don't freedom. That's the freedom that we aspire to is being able to say no, because the trade off isn't isn't worth it. Yeah, like if I have to leave my kids and get on a plane and sleep in a bed that's not mine, even if it's in a fancy hotel, it is something about the fact that 500,000 other people have probably slept on this mattress that still creeps me out to this day. We're not going to go there, but <laughs> it's just, it just is not the same for me. And I think the quality of life has changed. And one of the things that I heard you say was your co-founders. 
which has made this a much more easier process for mm-hmm. you. And I hear so many people say that, you know, it's really hard to find good people to do business with. Yep. So kind of talk about that. How did you find these people? How did you get to a place where you're like, these are my business partners. I trust them. And what does that look like? Yeah. So um, my business partners um, are incredible. We went to college together. So that's how I met them. And we stayed in contact as we all navigated kind of the post-grad life and moved to different cities and different jobs. And, you know, convincing people to quit their job and work with you on a vision as as grand as like, we want to be the Black millennial media company for our generation is uh, not a trivial thing. So it was a lot of, it took some, some more than others, more time. Um, they needed more security. Um, one of my co-founders was getting married. Um, another one uh, wanted to go to B school. So there were there was a lot of negotiation. And my perspective and all of our perspectives is that we're business partners for life. So it behooves us for, yes, you to go get married, <laughs> right? You're going to get married at some point. Yeah. And it behooves us for, yes, you go get the Stanford Business School degree. I mean, I like it because we're busy and you're in school and we're building this company. But at the end of the day, in 10 years from now, I'm going to be grateful for it because you're going to have a network that we all can benefit from and relationships. And you can speak a vocabulary that I'll never have, you know, not going to to B school, but still running a company. So I think that co-founders balance you out. And in terms of finding them, though, that's the hard part is finding people that you can trust. So my recommendation for people, if they're looking for co-founders or business partners, is to start working on something um, start a joint venture that's not your core venture. So like, let's say you're a real estate agent and you want to build a partnership and build a separate company with an interior designer. Okay, well, like, don't give them your company you have today. Create a joint venture, create a separate entity that you all both own 50-50 so that they don't have access to what you've already created and you don't have access to what they've already created so that you can figure out how you all can work together and what you can build together. And it's no loss, right? It's like, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out, it's no big deal, it's just LLC. And and there's a thing that everyone says, like, don't do business with your friends. Well, you- I don't agree with that. With your friends, yeah. So don't agree with that, that was my next question. No, I do business with my friends all the time um, because it's, it's game theory. They have a reason why they need to operate a certain way, why I need to operate a certain way because we are in each other's lives for a long time. So my first recruiter I hired for Blavity was my best friend. Uh, the the My friends who threw, threw the first parties and managed the nightlife for Afrotech were two of my good friends, uh, Toasted Life and now R&B House Party. Um, like we, it's so much easier to me. Why would I give money to people I don't know? Like, I don't like that. I would rather it be in my network. Now we don't need to be best friends, but yeah. People I know, people in my network, it's better to do business with business with because there's dividends, there's returns, there's an extra value of that entire experience and our whole class of, of Black entrepreneurs doing better together. Yeah, I get it 100%. And, and one of the things that I think, I think it's easier to scale when you have that support system, when you have that team, you know, whether it's a business partner or, or having staff. Um, how critical do you think delegation has been to the success of your business? Oh, I wouldn't be where I am without my team. I mean, my early employees um, are like baby co-founders in a lot of ways. I mean, they their energy, their- refer to them as that. That was, that was a powerful moment, right? They are. I mean, they've been with me for six years, you know? So it's like, they can hold me accountable. There are certainly times where they were like, you- we do not like you as CEO right now. We do not like this. We don't like this culture. We do not like what's happening. And because I trust them, I could hear them. You know, yeah. they could point out blind spots and then I had to decide what I wanted to do about it. But I think having those early people on your team are so critical because they're growing things with you. Not everybody wants to be the CEO. Not everybody wants the pressure of making all the decisions but they do, there's a lot of people that want to be a part of something big. And there's a lot of people that want to be a part of a team. So if you're thinking about building your team and you're in the early stages, my advice is to find people who want to be on a journey with you, who are also passionate about the audience or the customer that you're serving. And it can't just be about a money transaction. It needs to be uh, 
really about them agreeing with the mission and what you all are trying to do or build. For sure. And over the years, you've continued to, you know, grow Blavity and, and you realize that you all could do these sponsorship agreements and these and these, you know, this ad space. And let's dig a little deeper into, you know, how you guys make money. So you have your sponsorships, you have your media, you know, how did Blavity scale to the next level? Yeah, so Blavity makes money in basically two divisions now. So one is an impression-based business. So we sell impressions. Impressions are when you're going on a website or you're on social and you see a ad, whenever you see it, that system is logging you as an impression. Mm. So if you're on a website, you go on blavity.com right now, which you all should do, and you go and you see the ads on the site, you're going to see an ad. And I'm going to count you as an impression. You're going to see three, four ads. That's yeah. going to be three, four impressions. Those ads, if you stay there long enough, are going to refresh. And I'm going to get another impression out of you. Okay. And that's how we make money. That's why our content can be free. Other publishers are now gating their content and doing subscriptions. Business Insider, New York Times, DigiDay. Yeah. We decided... That. I've seen that lately. Yeah. Yeah. Because the ad business is very, very tough and ad prices are declining and there's more ad competition with Amazon and Facebook and Google than taking most of the ad impressions, building most of the ad impressions in the business. So it's hard to compete. Um, so that being said, I have an ad-based business. So we are impression-based. So we sell impressions on videos on the website on the newsletter, when you open a newsletter, there's an ad, boom, I'm logging an impression. That's how media companies make money. Wow. You're on YouTube and you see a video ad, that's an impression, okay? That's the media business through and through. We make money as a part of that, um, not only on the display, on the actual banner ads, but we also will make content. So we'll make um, a partnership with a big corporation to make a set of content, which we call a microsite or a content hub where we're creating videos and we're creating articles and we're really hiring influencers, having them post on social and it's an entire campaign. So people pay us a lot of money to do that because we can make the content, we can distribute it and we can make sure that our demographic, their target user wants to see it. And it's gonna be authentic. It's gonna be true. It's not gonna feel like really yucky. <laughs> you know, it's going to feel like, oh, I actually kind of want to read this article. Um, that's how we make money on the on the media side of the business. Now at Afrotech, which is the other division, we are selling a couple things. One, we sell tickets, just like any other event. It's a good business, just like, uh, uh, like a concert or a festival. I mean, we sell tickets. And then two, we have enterprise clients who are recruiting. So we have recruit, we partner with recruiters are interested in diverse candidates and uh, getting more Black people into technology. And so we work with our, our clients ranging from Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, Twitter, like every single big tech company to help them uh, retain their Black employees and to grow their Black employee base. Wow. Wow. And, and how have you all pivoted? How have you all been able to pivot with, you know, COVID-19 as far as, you know, being a Black tech company that has conferences have you all gone and done like the online conference like did that impact your business yeah so we have done a couple of different things um we launched a streaming platform that streams live events called lunchtable.com it's called lunch table because blavity was founded at a lunch table back in the back in the old days of college um and so you can go on that site and we will you can look at any of our content. So you can go watch Afrotech last year on Lunch Table. You can go watch Summit 21 from two years ago on Lunch Table. We partner with events, like we're streaming a Bloomberg Summit. We are a media partner for the inauguration. So we stream other people's events to help them get more distribution, more audience. And we do that for free because to us, it's like we're getting new users and we're building relationships with our partners. So we built a tech platform. Um, and then we also, uh, used an, a vendor to create a virtual avatar experience, which we called Afrotech World. So we had to cancel the conference because of the of COVID last year, but we built an entire custom experience where you could 
dress up as an avatar and walk around. And we had concerts, Jadena performed, Mario performed, um, PJ Morton performed. We had speakers, we twerked, there's a boat. It was so much fun. Um, so that was last year. This year, we're going to do a bit of a hybrid because we can kind of be in person at Afrotex in November. Okay, got it. All right. So that is just crazy because you, I know that you all had to kind of flip that on the fly, you know, and that, that's where the creativity comes in as far as like innovation. Oh, we innovation. I definitely lost some hair last year. Oh my God. <laughs> that was so stressful. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a big, big conference. You know, we have 150 clients. Our clients are the best companies in the world. So they wanted the best product in the world digitally. And we had to deliver. That was a game changer. And, and let's just talk about like pivoting, you know, um, how, how have you been able to just pivot in business? Were there any times outside of just, you know, the COVID stuff where you've had to just make just quick moves to kind of stay on your toes in business and, and what can you what can you tell our listeners about the power of pivoting? Yeah, I think that um, as an entrepreneur with a business that grew as fast as, as mine has grown, you know, we've doubled, tripled in size every year. Uh, you have to constantly be pivoting because what worked a year ago is definitely not going to work <laughs> this year. And even even now, as we're planning for the world reopening and the kind of pent up demand for in person connection. You know, what worked this year is not going to work in 2022 and 2023. So I'm constantly working with our leadership team and our management team to think about how we are going to adjust the business in the future. I try not to make huge pivots anymore. I mean, last year we had to because of the pandemic, yeah. but I don't really want to go from like left to right. It's yeah. too aggressive and it's too disruptive to my team and it's, it's too jarring. Um, what I would prefer to do is just constant optimizations. Yeah. You know, and just move things over slightly and do a lot more conversations, change management, communication, and making sure that everybody is in alignment with where we're trying to go. And I view, um, we make a, we test a lot of stuff at the company. So there's things that we've tested that just don't work. And that's a part of our culture. And that's not a, it's not a ding on the person who created it or tried something and failed. We talk a lot about, okay, we're going to run this test. Okay. We're going to, what's your hypothesis? What do you think success looks like? And so that culture of failing and learning and mistakes and pivots is a part of what makes us successful. And it kind of reduces that shame of perfection that I think a lot of companies have. And I think I can only imagine that you got a lot of that and you experienced a lot of that in the raising money phase, like oh, yeah. the rejection, you know, and, and people saying, no, you know, were, were there ever a time, was, was there ever a time where you were raising money and was there any specific moment or client or person that you were trying to kind of uh, pitch to? And it was just like, boom. And you were like, wow. Yeah. I, so I've raised around 12, a little over $12 million in wow. the last six years. Come on, Morgan. <laughs> you know, I don't talk about it much. But, <laughs> uh, it's, it's funny because like in the black world, um, in the black startup world, a lot of people are just now raising their first, you know, seed funding a million dollars, $2 million, $3 million. And it's so incredible to see. Um, but in the white world, you know, people have been raising fifty, hundred million dollar rounds for ten. Let me camera down, Malik. Go ahead. You see this shirt? Go ahead. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> you know I'm saying so. I'm proud of us. I'm proud of our progress because that wasn't happening for Black folks six years ago when I was raising money. There was maybe five to ten Black women raising money at the same time I was. Now there's a hundred plus. Yeah. And so, so there's a lot of progress. That being said, I remember this one moment. I had moved to DC with my boyfriend at the time, partially because I was broke and I was running out of money. It was at the tail end. <laughs> I'm a DC girl. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I lived in DC long enough. And um and I was raising money and I was on the road all the time. So it was good to just have a place where I didn't have to pay rent and I could just travel and raise money. And I was on the phone with these uh two women investors in New York, they were, they had started a fund to invest in women. And so I was like, perfect. I'm a woman. You're a woman. Perfect. We're a woman. <laughs> We're a woman, right. So I get on the phone 
and I messed up the intro. Like I messed up those first couple of, of like that first moment where you really got to jazz it up and I could just feel it. Like I could, you know, when you can see yourself messing up, but you still have to keep going because you can't stop because you're in, you're on a call. So it's not like I could be like, can I start over? You know? And I just started crying. They couldn't see me because it was a phone call, but I just started crying because I was like, I just messed this up and I know you're not going to invest. Where did you, where did you mess up? What was the question? Where did it go wrong? I want to hear it, girl. Like we, we're here for shits and giggles on this podcast as well. I feel like I have too much PTSD from that call. I can't even remember what it was, but I just remember the feeling and I remember sinking to the floor, trying to finish the call. And in the middle of it, they said, oh, you know, I don't think this is a good fit for us. Um, but when you come back, when you get a little bit bigger, come back and, and fundraise. And I was so emotional that I said, but if, if I don't raise from you all, I may not exist. There will be nothing for me to come back to. There's, if you all don't invest in me, then I don't know who else will. You say that? Yes, which you really shouldn't say on a call to invest. Yeah, it was a, it was begging at that point. I mean, if you were I going, was desperate. I was so upset. I, I was disappointed in myself. I was disappointed because I knew they were going to say no. And then they said no. And it was just, I was so tired. Um, but I would tell you the, the good side about that. I was just done. I was just like, I'm done with this. I don't like it here. <laughs> I don't want to raise money. And so... Um. And, and it was interesting, two things. One, now, uh, was it probably last year? So no, two years ago, um, I met one of them at a happy hour at, uh, in person. And it, we, I, I was at a GV happy hour. Google led my Series A, uh, which means they put up the, the majority of the money for the round. And, and uh, Google Ventures owns a nice chunk of levity. And um, I was at one of their happy hours, which is very, you know, who's who of New York, very who's who of tech, not black tech, all tech, right? She was, and she sat across from me and she said, you know, I remember that call. And I said, oh, I remember that call too. And she said, you know, I, I really wish we hadn't passed. And I said, uh, you know, I was on the floor crying and she said, I felt like we made a mistake. Like right after that call, I felt like we made a mistake and I wish I had. Well, now she's like, <laughs> can we get in here? Let's do it. And I'm like, no, it's a wrap. But um, that felt so good, that full circle moment later, knowing that I, even though I had put myself out there and I had had this super vulnerable moment in a, a dynamic that's supposed to be very professional, you know, you don't do that on investor calls. You don't cry. There's no desperation. There should be no entitlement to someone else's money. Don't buy into me. Who will? Just draw. <laughs> if not you, then who? So. <laughs> Yeah, luckily I didn't need them <laughs> exactly exactly and look at you now you know look at yeah. you and, and just being able to overcome rejection I think that that is an even bigger lesson in entrepreneurship that people don't really talk about because rejection rejection is a bitch like it's scary and it is paralyzing and it makes you want to, you know, turn into she's a runner she's a track star she's you know? a and I will say too <laughs> I mean, I was very grumpy for two to three years. Like I had a huge chip on my shoulder. I know there's people now who think I'm mean or I'm a bully or I'm this. And I'm like, I wasn't a bully or I wasn't mean. I was just tired, you know? And so at that phase of my life, it was really intense. And I was under a lot of pressure and I was putting a lot of pressure on myself and I knew the stakes. And um, it was a really tough part of my life. So I'm grateful that it's over. And that we made it through and, <laughs> and, and my business is successful, you know, in spite of the challenges. And so for any woman who is raising money or thinking about, you know, kind of scaling to that next level and you're feeling tired, just know that it is a phase. It, it can just be a phase. Get through it. Get yeah. the bag. Move on. Do you think it's a difference between being a woman raising money and being a man raising money? I think raising money is one of the hardest things anyone can do. So I think that's really important is that it's difficult for everyone. I have plenty of male CEO friends who have had a terrible time raising money where it's been easier for me than it has been for them. Um, and for women, the additional layer is that there's a lot of conversations that we can't be a part of. So when my male friends go raise money, they can go to dinners with, with VCs. They can go to happy hours with VCs. They can be invited to the things with these other male VCs, I can't go because I don't want to be put in a position where, right? So I'm out, I'm out 30, 40% of the time. Um, 
in those spaces, which means I'm missing out on the opportunity of networking and relationship building because I don't feel comfortable with the power dynamic between men and women and investors and founders. Wow. You know, so that is, to me, that is the biggest challenge with being a woman raising money. I was just having a, con- a conversation with Savitria. I don't know if you know Savitria. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Like how she would pull up on people trying to get them to invest in her company, like literally go to a conference, watch them speak. They walk off the stage and she's like running up on you. Yeah. I mean, she's, she's fantastic. I don't have that level of courage, (laughs) (laughs) but she's, she is like incredible. (laughs) Wow. Well, you know, it's just so refreshing to hear you know, the inside of how this really looks because on social media, it just looks like success and, and no one hears these stories. Um, one of the things that I want to also just ask as we're wrapping up is where do you see, you know, Blavity and, and Afrotech um, in the next five years? And anyone that is listening that is thinking about their next business venture, you know, what is the direction you think people need to be looking in right now? So for Blavity, um, on the media side of the business, I mean, we're going to be everywhere you all are. So you'll see us in your earpods. You'll see us on TV screens where our intention is to build the brands across other places outside of just the website and the newsletter and social. So I'm looking forward to having the space and the creativity to work with more black video producers and creators um, so that we can help them and and be in partnership with them with making some of the best content that our generation's ever seen. Um, I think we're doing a lot. I think Black Hollywood is doing really well on the big screen. I think there's a lot of undercurrents of subcultures and conversations that are still being missed. So I look forward to Blavity being of assistance there. And Afrotech is going to be big. I mean, Afrotech, we're going to add music. We're going to add film. It's going to be a huge festival for not just techies, but anyone interested in learning new industries and technology is going to be a current across all those conversations, but it's disrupting film. It's disrupting uh, the music industry and currency, finance, Bitcoin, NFTs. There's so many things we can cover. So I'm looking forward to 100,000 people, 200,000 people eventually getting to Afrotech. Um, on the personal side, I just started my own podcast. So I'm, I'm spending a lot more time advising. Yes, it's called the Work Smart Advisor Podcast. So go ahead and subscribe and listen. Um, and it's it's all about growing a business from behind the scenes because I learned a lot of stuff the hard way as a first-time entrepreneur. And I don't feel like it had to be as difficult as it was. And so my hope is that people can uh, skip level a bit by hearing from people like you and people like uh, other founders that I'm friends with and even just my own experiences. Love it, love it. And for those people who are thinking, what is the next big thing right now? What would you say that's gonna be, Morgan? If I were starting a business today um, and I wanted to do something that was gonna be the next big thing, I'd probably figure out, work on a FinTech company, Mm -hmm. like a financial technology company or a business to business company, technology company. Um, More and more people are becoming entrepreneurs than ever before. More and more people are becoming freelancers than ever before and are self-employed, which makes them an entrepreneur. And I think there's a lot of problems that could be solved for for that demographic. Um, And then on the financial side, I think the finance industry is a really old school industry that because of technology, is being disrupted. And so there's a lot of things there. There's a lot of space to play in the financial tech industry. And this could, that, could, that includes insurance, that includes real estate, that includes anything that's like really expensive that you do in your life, credit, loans, things of that nature. Okay. One minute question before we close out. Um, favorite social media platform? Instagram. <laughs> All right. Favorite software that you must have to keep your company going, that you live by, you swear by, everyone needs to check it out. Asana. Asana, okay. Um, Favorite music right now that you listen to to stay motivated throughout the week? Oh, Rihanna all day. Rihanna, okay. Um, Favorite self-care practice? I take baths every Sunday night. Baths. Self-care. Okay. We got to send you some holistic. (laughs) And something that you are currently doing to give back to the community. 
so much. My Work Smart podcast is free. Um, we just launched Blavity.org, our nonprofit arm of Blavity Inc., and we have a free program with that. And um, locally here, now that I've moved to Nashville, I'm looking forward to volunteering locally and just getting to know the city better. Love it. And one thing that you would like to say to our audience before we wrap. Keep going, sis. <laughs> get, get up off the floor. Keep going. And where can everyone come and connect with you, Morgan? Come on, plug us, plug us, plug us. You can connect with me. I'm at Morgan Devon everywhere on the internet. Um, the Work Smart Podcast, if you're interested in more business advice and uh, come to Afrotech. You know, if you're curious about anything that we've talked about, we talk about it a lot and you get to meet the most incredible entrepreneurs, most incredible business people in the world, in our community. So go ahead and just invest in yourself and come to Afrotech. Love it. Make sure you all follow Morgan. Morgan, give them your Instagram handle one more time. At Morgan Debon, D-E-B-A-U-N. All right. Let her know that you heard her on the Girl CEO podcast and just share one aha moment from this podcast with her because she was so transparent. Morgan, thank you for coming here and dropping the gems. I'm so proud of you. Let me just give you your flowers. Oh, I, I thought I can pull these out of the vase, but let me give you your flowers. They're stuck in the vase. <laughs> wow, you are all here. I'm so proud of you, sister. I'm so proud of you and just keep going. And you inspire me. And I cannot wait to see, you know, what happens with Blavity and everything that you touch in the next five years. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Thank you. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.